You may have missed it, but last night was UFC 264. Okay, I've lost some of you already. Okay, some of you are like dialed right now. Some of you, I've lost you. Okay, UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship 264 was last night, highlighted by uh, Sugar Sean O'Malley, who is from Montana, Montana native, and he did his business. By the third round, he had a technical knockout right toward the end of the fight. It was incredible. He messed that guy up something fierce, okay? And if you're like, I can't believe we're starting off with this. Are you serious? Yeah, it gets better because there was a really good fight at the end of the night. It was supposed to be a really good fight. Uh, Diamond Dustin uh, Poirier versus Conor McGregor. It was supposed to be amazing, but ended up Conor McGregor broke his leg in the middle of the fight and it was not that great. It was kind of anticlimactic. Um, but if you wondered how I spent my Saturday night preparing for my sermon, there you go. <laughs> We love battles. That's the point. We love battles. Maybe you're like, no, I don't like fighting. I don't like senseless acts of violence. I don't like two guys or gals getting in an octagon and fighting it out for pay-per-view viewers. I don't like that. I would say, yeah, yeah, I get that. But you love a good battle, don't you? I mean, think about the movies that you like, right? Star Wars. It's a galactic battle against good and evil, the dark side and the light side. Some of you would say, ah, yeah, I'm not not a big Star Wars fan. You would say, I'm more into romance movies. Okay, okay, isn't there always like the good guy and then the bad guy? And you're like, you shouldn't choose the bad guy, but he's kind of cute, right? It's like a battle. So like a relational battle, right? And maybe it's Marvel. You love the Marvel action movies. There's good versus evil. There is a battle. Maybe you uh, like some of the historical movies or novels and you like reading about historical battles. Maybe you love School of Rock. Yeah. And you like rock battles. Okay. Maybe, um, maybe you love dance battles. <laughs> maybe you like Step Up. Uh, I'm going to admit to you, I've watched some step-up movies. I'm just going to tell you, uh, you can come try to take my man card. I will dance off with you right now, okay? All right? Learn some hip-hop, pop and lock. Love that step-up. And by the way, there was a lot of sequels to that movie. Like there was multiple movies in that series. And in 2014, there was step-up all in ahead of their time. Should have been Journey Church. Okay, I'm just telling you part of our mission statement. We love battles. That's the point. We love battles. We love a good battle versus good and evil. We like good coming out on top. And on top of that, we love battles because we know that battles are in our lives, right? And so here's the big question this morning. What battles are you facing right now? What battles are you facing right now? Uh, in this room and, and online, I would say there are, there are battles relationally. There are those of you who are in marriages where it's a battle every day right now. Things are not going well right now. You're not hearing each other. You're not listening to each other. There's a lot of yelling and 
bickering and fighting and miscommunication, and, and it feels like right now marriage is a battle. Uh, there are some of you who have relational battles uh, with friends right now, and something has divided your friendship in recent days, and, and you don't know if that, that friendship's gonna come back together. And it feels like a, a, like a battle. It feels like you're s- surrounded by, by conflict and, and some sort of a, a battle. Some of you are, are feeling like you're at battle with your kids. God bless you, right? You're like, man, every day seems like a battle. When is school year starting, right? Like they've been home every day now, and so... Uh, it's a little bit of a battle every single day. Some of you kids are like, yeah, well, my parents aren't any better. And it feels like a battle with them every day because all they say is no, no, no. I'm sorry, Eli and Neva. Some of you have relational battles and they feel like they're surrounding you right now. It feels like the, the haze from the smoke that is found in the mountains around us. So you, you just can't see out of, of that haze. And, and there's... And it feels like there's a battle to be fought. Some of you have emotional battles going on in your lives right now. This past year and a half was really hard for you. Some of you are super lonely. Some of you are at home right now and you're like, I haven't been to church. I don't know if I can go to church. I don't even know if I wanna be around people anymore. And, and you're struggling with that and, and you're having some emotional uh, health struggles. It's a battle. Some of us are depressed right now. Like we, we just came out of this downshift series and, and, and man, I heard a lot of feedback from folks who said, boy, that, that dredged up a lot in my life. Like I actually do have a lot of anxiety and fear and hurry and worry. And that series dredged up a lot of those emotions in my life. And, and for some of you, it feels like you're surrounded by this. You can't see clearly out of it. And you're, you're talking to doctors and counselors and you're trying to get all the proper help, but it's just it's just this emotional battle that's going on all around you. Or for some of you, it's a financial battle, right? Maybe you're just paycheck to paycheck and you're just waiting for the next thing to fall and you don't know, you don't know if it's gonna fall, when it's gonna fall, how we're gonna make it to next week. And, and so you're struggling. You have this battle financially and, and, and the lenses that you're looking through are, 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 are tinted by this conversation all of the time. It seems like you're surrounded by a financial battle. Some of you are facing health battles or you know somebody who's facing a health battle, don't we? We call it, right? Um, That person is battling cancer, right? Some of you have battled cancer in your life. Some of you have loved ones right now who are battling cancer. Talk to somebody after the first gathering and and we've been praying with and for them because they got this nine-year-old niece who's in Salt Lake City Hospital and she's battling for her life and we're all praying for her. And it just feels like this big thing around us, this gigantic problem around us that's just surrounding us and we're all just fighting and battling on her behalf. What, what, what battles are you facing right now? What, what battles have you just come out of? Or what battles don't you even know yet are to come? See, battles are part of this life. So what I want to discuss for a few moments this morning is what do we do in the midst of those battles? What do, what do we do in the midst of those battles? How do we turn to scripture and how does that help us? And what I want to turn to is um, the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms 
uh, is an anthology of its own, right? It is a collection of psalms and poems, many of them written by one of my favorite characters who I want to focus in on today, and his name is David. He is a poet. He is a writer. He writes songs. He writes his own anthology in the midst of lots of battles, David is one who is very familiar with battles. Throughout his entire life, he had battle after battle after battle. And and so when he was in the midst of those battles, he would often write songs. He would often write poems. And I want to share one of those with you that's very familiar to us this morning. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, that's what a battle feels like. You're in the valley, right? Even though I I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of my Lord forever. So the song that we are focusing in on today that we'll be singing at the end is called Surrounded. And that has a subtitle called Fight My Battles. And the song, it's an anthem, part of our anthology, declaring a way to fight the battles that are in our lives. And the song echoes the words of David, that even when we're in the valley, that in the presence of our enemies, the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the love of God will surely follow me all the days of my life. This song raises up Psalm 23 as a way for us to worship in the midst of our battles. One of David's greatest battles, you know this, It's called David and Goliath. You know this story, even if you haven't been around church much, right? David and Goliath, very famous story. I want to take a few minutes to look at this story, um, but I want to take a unique perspective on it. One of my favorite authors is named Malcolm Gladwell, and he's going to be at the Global Leadership Summit. He's one of the speakers there. That's why we're sharing this this morning. Uh, He is going to be speaking uh, to that group. He's written books like Blink, uh, The Tipping Point, What the Dog Saw, and then this book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And he takes such a unique perspective on this story that you've probably heard over and over Again, And instead of trying to replay what he said, I just want to give him full credit for what he did. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes and listen to one of his TED Talks where he introduces his unique perspective on the story of David and Goliath. Once again, if you're on YouTube, I would encourage you to go to journeyweb.net slash live. 
uh, tune in there uh, so there's no interruption in uh, this worship gathering. Let's watch Malcolm Gladwell teach us about the story of David and Goliath. Watch this. So I wanted to tell a story that, uh, that really obsessed me when I was writing my new book. And um, it's a story of something that happened 3,000 years ago when the kingdom of Israel was in its infancy. And it takes place in an area called the Shephelah um, in what is now uh, Israel. And the reason the story upsets me is that I thought I understood it, and then I went back over it, and I realized that I didn't understand it at all. Um, ancient Palestine had a, uh, along its eastern border, there's a mountain range, still same is true of Israel today, and in the mountain range are all of the ancient cities of that region. So Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron. Um, and then there's a coastal plain, right, along the Mediterranean, where Tel Aviv is now. And connecting the mountain range with the coastal plain is an area called the Shephelah, which is a series of valleys and ridges that run east to west. And you can follow the Shephelah, through the, go through the Shephelah to get from the coastal plain to the mountains. And the Shephelah, if you've been to Israel, you'll know it's just about the most beautiful part of Israel. It's gorgeous with uh, forests of oak and wheat fields and vineyards and but more importantly, though, in the history of that region, it's served, it's had a, a, a real strategic function. And that is, it is the means by which hostile armies on the coastal plain find their way, get, get up into the mountains and threaten those living in the mountains. And 3,000 years ago, that's exactly what happens. The Philistines, who are the, the biggest of enemies of the kingdom of Israel, are living in the coastal plain. They're originally from Crete. They're a seafaring people. And they may start to make their way through one of the valleys of the Shephelah up into the mountains because what they want to do is occupy the highland area right by Bethlehem and split the kingdom of Israel in two. And the kingdom of Israel, which is headed by King Saul, obviously catches wind of this. And Saul brings his army down from the mountains and he confronts the Philistines in the Valley of Elah, one of the most beautiful of the valleys of the Shephelah. And the Israelites dig in along the northern ridge and the uh, the Philistines dig in along the southern ridge and the two armies just sit there for weeks and stare at each other because they're deadlocked. Neither can attack the other because to attack the other side you've got to come down the mountain into the valley and then up the other side and you're completely exposed. So finally to break the deadlock the Philistines send their mightiest warrior down into the valley floor and he calls out and he says to the Israelites send your mightiest warrior down, and we'll have this out, just the two of us. This was a tradition in ancient warfare called single combat. It was a way of settling disputes without incurring the bloodshed of a major battle. And the Philistine who sent down their mighty warrior is a giant. He's six foot nine. Uh, he's outfitted head to toe in this glittering bronze armor. And he's got a sword and he's got a javelin, he's got a spear. He is absolutely terrifying. And he's so terrifying that none of the Israelite soldiers want to fight him. It's a, it's a death wish, right? There's no way they think they can take him. And finally, the only person who will come forward is this young shepherd boy. And he goes up to Saul and he says, I'll fight him. And Saul says, you, Saul says, you can't fight him. That's ridiculous. You're this kid. This is this mighty warrior. But the shepherd is adamant. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I have been defending my flock against uh, lions and wolves for years. I think I can do it. And Saul has no choice. He's got no one else who's come forward. So he says, all right, 
And then he turns to the kid and he says, but you've got to wear this armor. You can't go as you are. So he tries to give the shepherd his armor, and the shepherd says, no. He says, I, I, I can't wear this stuff. I've, I, the biblical verse is, I, have not, I cannot wear this, for I have not proved it. Meaning, I've never worn armor before. You've got to be crazy. So he reaches down instead on the ground and picks up five stones and puts them in his shepherd's bag and starts to walk down the mountainside to meet the giant. And the giant sees this figure approaching and calls out, come to me so I can feed your flesh to the, to the birds of the heavens and the, and the beasts of the field, right? He issues this kind of taunt towards this person coming to fight him. And the shepherd draws closer and closer and the giant sees that he's carrying a staff. That's all he's carrying, right? Instead of a weapon, just this shepherd's staff. And he says, am I, a, he's insulted. Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks, right? And the shepherd boy takes one of his stones out of his pocket, puts it in his sling and whirls it around and lets it fly. And it hits the giant right between the eyes, like right here in his most vulnerable spot. And he falls down either dead or unconscious, and the shepherd boy runs up and takes his sword and cuts off his head, and the Philistines see this, and they turn, and they just run. (laughs) And, of course, the name of the giant is Goliath, and the name of the shepherd boy is David, and the reason that story has obsessed me over the course of writing my book is that everything I thought I knew about that story turned out to be wrong. So... David in that story is supposed to be the underdog, right? In fact, that term, David and Goliath, has entered our language as a metaphor for improbable victories by some weak party over someone far stronger. Now, why do we call David an underdog? Well, we call him an underdog because he's a kid, little kid, and Goliath is this big, strong giant. We also call him an underdog because uh, Goliath is an experienced warrior, and David is just a shepherd, right? But most importantly, we call him an underdog because all he has is, is, giant, is, that, is that Goliath is outfitted with all of this modern weaponry, right? This glittering coat of armor and, a, and a, a sword and a javelin and a spear. And all David has is this sling. Well, let's start there with the phrase, all David has is this sling, because that's the first mistake that we make. In ancient warfare, there are three kinds of warriors. There's cavalry, men on horseback and in with chariots. There is heavy infantry, which are foot soldiers, armed foot soldiers with uh, swords and shields and some kind of armor. And there's artillery. And artillery are archers, but more importantly, slingers. And a slinger is someone who has a leather pouch with two long cords attached to it. And they put a projectile, either a rock or a lead ball, inside the pouch. And they whirl it around like this, and they let one of the cords go, and the effect is to send the projectile forward at, um, uh, towards its target. Right? That's what David has. And it's important to understand that that sling is not a slingshot. It's not this, right? It's not a child's toy. It's, in fact, an incredibly devastating weapon. When David whirls it around like this, he's, he's turning his... Uh, this thing around probably at six or seven revolutions per second. And that means that when the ball is, when the rock is released, it's going forward really fast, probably 35 meters per second. That's substantially faster than uh, uh, baseball thrown by um, even the finest of baseball pitchers. More than that, 
The stones in the Valley of Elah were not normal rocks. They were barium sulfate, which are rocks twice the density of normal stones. If you do the calculations on the ballistic, on the stopping power of the rock fired from David's sling, it's roughly equal to the stopping power of a 45-millimeter handgun. Right? This is an incredibly devastating weapon. Accuracy, we know from uh, historical records that slingers uh, had, experienced slingers could hit um, and maim or, serious or, or even kill a target at distances of up to 200 yards. From medieval tapestries, uh, we know that slingers were capable of hitting birds in flight. They're incredibly accurate, right? When David lines up, and he's not 200 yards away from Goliath, he's quite close to Goliath. When he lines up and fires that thing at Goliath, there is, he has every intention and every expectation of being able to hit Goliath at his most vulnerable spot between his eyes. If you go back over the history of ancient warfare, you will find time and time again that slingers were the decisive factor against infantry in one kind of battle, against heavy infantry in one kind of battle um, or another. So what's Goliath? He's heavy infantry. And his expectation when he challenges the Israelites to a duel is that he's going to be fighting another heavy infantryman, right? When he says, come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, the key phrase is come to me. Come up to me because we're going to fight hand to hand like this. Saul has the same expectation. David says, I want to fight Goliath, and Saul tries to give him his armor because Saul is thinking, oh, when you say fight Goliath, you mean fight him in hand-to-hand combat, infantry on infantry. But David has absolutely no expectation. No, he's not going to fight him that way. Why would he? He's a shepherd. He spent his entire career using a sling to defend his flock against lions and wolves. That's where his strength lies. So here he is, this shepherd, experienced in the use of a devastating weapon, up against this lumbering giant weighed down by a hundred pounds of armor and these incredibly heavy weapons that are useful only in short-range combat. Goliath is a sitting duck. He doesn't have a chance, right? So why do we keep calling David an underdog and why do we keep referring to his victory as improbable? It's the second piece of this that's important. It's not just that we misunderstand David and his choice of weaponry. It's also that we profoundly misunderstand Goliath. Goliath is not what he seems to be. There's all kinds of hints of this in the biblical text. Um, Things that are, in retrospect, are quite puzzling and don't square with his image as this mighty warrior. So to begin with, the Bible says that Goliath is led onto the valley floor by an attendant. Now that is weird, right? Here is this mighty warrior going, challenging the Israelites to one-on-one combat. Why is he being led by the hand, by some, you know, young boy, presumably, to the point of combat? Secondly, the Bible story uh, makes special note of how slowly Goliath moves. Another odd thing to say when you're describing the mightiest warrior known to man at that point, right? And then there's this whole weird thing about how long it takes Goliath to react to the, to the sight of David. So David's coming down the mountain, and he's clearly not preparing for 
hand-to-hand combat, right? There is nothing about him that says, I'm about to fight you like this. He's not even carrying a sword. Why does Goliath not react to that? It's as if he's oblivious to what's going on that day. And then there's this strange, that strange comment he makes to David. Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Right? Sticks? David only has one stick. Well, it turns out that there's been a great deal of speculation within the medical community over the years about uh, whether there's something wrong with, fundamentally wrong with Goliath, an attempt to make sense of all of those apparent anomalies. There been many articles written. The first one was in 1960 in the Indiana uh, Medical Journal. And it started a chain of speculation that starts with an explanation for Goliath's height. So Goliath is head and shoulders above all of his peers in that era. And usually when someone is that far out of the norm, there's an explanation for it. So the most common form of giantism uh, is a condition called acromegaly. And acromegaly is caused by a benign tumor on your uh, pituitary gland that causes an overproduction of human growth hormone. And throughout history, many of the most famous giants have all had acromegaly. So the tallest person of all time was a guy named Robert Wadlow who was still growing when he died at the age of 24, and he was eight foot 11. He had acromegaly. Do you remember the wrestler Andre the Giant, famous? He had acromegaly. There's even speculation that uh, Abraham Lincoln had acromegaly. Anyone who's unusually tall, that's the first uh, explanation we come up with. And acromegaly has a very distinct set of side effects associated with it, principally having to do with uh, vision. pituitary tumor, as it grows, often starts to compress the visual nerves in your brain, with the result that people with acromegaly have either uh, double vision or they are profoundly nearsighted. So when, we, when people have started to speculate about what might have been wrong with Goliath, they've said, wait a minute, he looks and sounds an awful lot like someone who has acromegaly. And that would also explain so much of what was strange about his behavior that day, right? Why does he move so slowly and have to be escorted down into the valley floor by an attendant? Because he can't make his way on his own, right? Why is he so strangely oblivious to David that he doesn't understand that David's not going to fight him until the very last moment? Because he can't see him, right? When he says... Come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. The phrase come to me is a hint also of his vulnerability. Come to me because I can't see you, right? And then there's, uh, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? He sees two sticks when David has only one. So the Israelites up on the mountain ridge looking down on him thought he was this extraordinarily powerful foe, what they didn't understand was that the very thing that was the source of his apparent strength was also the source of his greatest weakness. And there is, I think, in that a very important lesson for all of us. Giants are not as strong and powerful as they seem. And sometimes the shepherd boy has a sling in his pocket. Sometimes the shepherd boy has a sling in his pocket. The Lord is my shepherd. Here's what I want to ask you. 
in reflection to that, in reflection to this Psalm of David and this story of David, what weapons has God given you for the battle? What weapons has God given you for the battle? Now, I know a bunch of us are going to run to like a, a self-help moment here. Be like, well, I can, I, I'm, okay, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, I'll figure this out, okay? Um, but, but I want to talk with you for a moment about an unexpected, an unexpected weapon for your battle. M- much like David who had the unexpected weapon of his sling versus the giant Goliath. I want to talk about an unexpected weapon that I think we all have and can wield in the midst of feeling surrounded by our battles. And that is the weapon of worship. See, one of the things we're trying to teach you this summer is to become a more vibrant worshiper. Someone who engages with God in a new and fresh way as you worship. And listen, worship isn't just singing, okay? It's not just being here on Sundays. Worship is a way of life. But, but I need you to understand that you are a worshiper. Some of you would say, nope, I'm not a worshiper, Brian. I sit in the back row, I cross my arms, and I look very skeptically at you. Uh, to see if you're going to actually teach the biblical text or not. And I would say, you don't do that when your favorite team is playing and they win. You don't do that. You suddenly become a worshiper. Yeah, touchdown, right? You, you don't act like that when you're on the golf course and you hit that 100-yard shot and it comes to within two feet of the cup. You're like, yes, like Tiger Woods, right? You're a worshiper. I don't act like that when I catch a brown trout. Like I catch a brown trout and it's like the heavens opened up, okay? And the glory of God shone down on me because there is a 20 inch brown trout in my net. You were made for worship. You were made for worship, right? And, and so worship is a weapon. It's an unexpected weapon. It's like a sling, Something that you wouldn't actually expect. One of the things in the historical data about David and the battles was that an unexpected person led people into battle quite often, right? Not often a shepherd led them into battle to fight the giant, but a very common thing that would happen is that in front of the armies, there would be drummers and singers. The musicians would lead the army into the battle so that when the, when the armies were coming, they would hear the drums and they would, they would hear the shouts that our God is going to give us this victory. Our God is going to win this battle for us. And if, if you were the opposing army, you would think, oh man, what is coming at me right now? Worship was their weapon. It led them into battle. Worship is your weapon. It, it, it's a weapon. That's how David used it. Right? That's, how, that's how David used it in the Psalms. He used it as a weapon because here's what David knew. God has ultimately won the battle. That's what David knew when he walked into that valley, when he was feeling surrounded by enemies on different uh, moments of his life, he knew God still had the ultimate victory. See, God has won the battle. 
when Jesus came to be with us, not far from us, but Emmanuel, God with us, to live a sinless and perfect and faultless life, to show us an ethic unlike any other, to show us the way to live, the way to love, the way to care for one another, and the way to sacrifice, ultimately on a cross for the sins of the world. He won the battle for us. When he rose three days later, that's why we celebrate Sunday. We celebrate the first day of the week. Easter isn't just one day of the week. It's today again. We celebrate a risen Savior who has the victory, who has won the battle, right? God has won the battle. That's why you can be confident in the midst of whatever battle you're in right now, whether it's relational, whether it's financial, whether it's a health concern, you, you can find a way to praise the Lord, to worship him in the midst of this battle. See, David knows it. He says this, even though I walked through the darkest valley, right? He, he was in a valley with a giant. Even though I walked through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For why? You're with me. You're with me. It's not that I'm on my own in here. It's not that I'm on my own fighting this Goliath. It's that you are here with me in the darkest valley. You, he keeps going. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Do you know what he's talking about there? He's like, hey, you're gonna set out a table of really good things right in front of my enemies, right in the middle of danger, right in the middle of the battle. You're gonna say, sit down, I got this. I got this. Just sit down Enjoy what I've put on this table in the midst of your enemies. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David uses worship as a weapon and so should we. So here's what I want to invite you into. I wanna invite you into a time uh, of worshiping as a weapon corporately. I want us to spend some time worshiping as a weapon, singing the words to this song. It's called Surrounded, uh, Fight My Battles. You'll find the words of Psalm 23 written within it, woven within this song. And what I just want you to encourage you to think about is whatever battle you're in, whatever battle you've just come out of, whatever battle you're going into that you didn't even know about yet, I want you to even just, just for a moment, find a way to worship in the midst of that battle. Let us prepare by reading Psalm 23. Let's use this as a prayer as it leads us into more worship. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the midst of whatever valley you're in, in the midst of whatever feels like it's surrounding you, 
Let's stand together and let's worship.
Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.